there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. This episode features discussion of extreme violence and genocide that some people may find offensive. Listener discretion is advised, especially for children under 13. 39-year-old Tootsie shopkeeper Marie Louise lay hidden on the floor of a van as it bounced down a Rwandan highway. To her left was a hired driver. To her right sat her former neighbor, Monsieur Florian, a high-ranking Hutu military chief who had promised to escort her to safety. Marie-Louise considered Florian to be a man of his word, but as the van slowed to a halt at a military checkpoint, she began to feel sick with fear. She heard soldiers surrounding the vehicle. They could decide to search it at any moment. If they found her, they would kill her immediately. After what felt like an eternity, the soldiers told the driver to go ahead. Marie-Louise let out a breath of relief as the van rolled forward. But she wasn't out of danger yet. In fact, she was being driven straight into it, onto the Hutu-run Gakko military camp. Not only were the Hutus a centuries-old rival of her people, they had also just been ordered by the government to exterminate every Tutsi in the country. It was May 1994, the third week of the Rwandan genocide. And for Marie-Louise, this journey into enemy territory was her last desperate hope for survival. Welcome to Survival, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Irma Blanco. And I'm Tim Johnson. Every Monday, we'll take you inside incredible true stories of life-or-death situations. You can find episodes of Survival and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Survival for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Survival in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast. 
and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our second and final episode on the Rwandan genocide. Over the course of 100 days in the spring of 1994, a paramilitary group called the Interahamwe murdered thousands of Rwandan Tutsis. With the government sanctioning these killings, the Tutsis had to take desperate measures in order to survive. Last week, we followed the genocide's outbreak through the eyes of three Tutsis, Marie-Louise, Francine, and Innocent. This week, we'll follow these three stories to their conclusions. As the Interahamwe continue to close in, Marie-Louise, Francine, and Innocent will have to use every survival trick in the book if they hope to stay alive. In the spring and summer of 1994, a civil war in Rwanda devolved into one of the most horrific genocides in human history. Members of the Hutu majority set out to exterminate every Tutsi in the nation. As a result, Tutsis were forced to go into hiding, taking shelter in private homes, forests, and even deadly marshes to survive. 19-year-old Francine Niategeka was one of the thousands who fled the killings into the Nyamwiza Marsh. Now she was lying on a bed of papyrus reeds, unmoving. A wound festered on her forehead where she had been struck by a club a few hours before. Mosquitoes buzzed around her in the muddy water. If she wasn't dead already, she would be soon. Eventually, a young man about Francine's age crept out of the foliage. He gazed for a moment at her prostrate figure. Then, lifting a container to her lips, he poured a few drops of water into her parched mouth. The young Tutsi woman opened her eyes. She stared at the young man in confusion at first. Then, with growing recognition, Francine had survived the attempt of her life and she was now looking into the eyes of her fiancé, Teofil. Francine had no idea why the Interahamwe, a Hutu paramilitary group, had failed to finish her off. Maybe, given the severity of the wound on her forehead, they thought she was already dead. Or maybe they planned to come back for her later. Either way, the 19-year-old knew one thing. Fate had determined that she must survive. With Teofil's help, she pulled herself out of the marsh and began nursing herself back to life. That night, and for many nights afterward, Francine rested on the dry hillside where Teofil brought her handfuls of food he had gathered in the fields. Every morning, she returned to the horrible routine of submerging herself in the marsh between 9 a.m. and 4 p.m., the teen lay among snakes, mosquitoes, and corpses, hoping the Interahamwe would pass her by. It was excruciatingly difficult to remain hidden, and it was about to get even worse. When the genocide started a week or two earlier, many of the killers had been unprepared. Their actions had been sporadic and disorganized. However, the Interahamwe were becoming more efficient at completing their deadly mission. 
Instead of aimlessly searching the marsh, the killers started using tricks to make Francine and the other survivors reveal themselves. They called out in friendly tones, saying things like, I recognize you, you can come out. Then, when the Tutsis responded to their calls, the Interahamwe caught and slaughtered them. The Hutus were also getting creative in the forest, where 32-year-old teacher Innocent Rilaliza was hiding. Back when the murders had started, Innocent had sent his family to stay in the town church while he set about evading the killers in a nearby eucalyptus grove. At first, the Interahamwe had just chased Tutsis through the trees, but now the men were setting up ambushes to take their victims by surprise. In response, Innocent and his companions were forced to undergo a common biological development with uncommon speed, adaptation. According to Darwin's theory of natural selection, adaptation occurs when organisms evolve by reacting to changes in their environment. Typically, the process takes place over about a million years. However, in a genocide, events occur at lightning speed. Facing potential extinction, innocent and thousands of other Tutsis were forced to adapt to new circumstances immediately. This meant finding a way not only to outrun the killers, but to outsmart them as well. And Innocent quickly developed a strategy. Whenever the teacher heard his attackers approaching, he waited until they were only a few hundred yards off. Then, once they spotted him, he took off running. The moment he was out of the Hutu's eyeline, Innocent doubled back while the killers went on chasing those who were running straight ahead. Innocent circled around behind them, earning himself a much-needed rest. This combination of skill and strategy made it possible for Innocent to continue living when almost all his companions were killed. Even so, the race to survive soon started wearing him down. Every night, when the Interahamwe stopped their daily slaughter, Innocent gathered in the forest with those who had survived. The survivors shared food and stories while removing lice from each other's hair. They also listened to radio broadcasts on a device that a boy had managed to salvage from town. They were eager to hear news from the rest of Rwanda. Unfortunately, the Hutu-led government controlled most, if not all, of the local radio stations. And they used them for propaganda, vaunting their advances against the rebels and exhorting their citizens to kill any Tutsi they encountered. Hearing these calls to carnage, Innocent and his companions began to lose hope. Here they were, running for their lives on a daily basis, watching their tribespeople get cut to pieces. Now they realized the murders weren't even a secret. They were sanctioned by the government. Even worse, no one seemed to be trying to stop the genocide. It was as if the entire world agreed with what Innocent's colleague had said to him weeks before, that all Tutsis were going to die. Thankfully, this was not entirely the case. 
A Tutsi-led rebel group that had been fighting the government in a civil war since 1990 was beginning to make considerable progress against their Hutu aggressors. Known as the Rwandan Patriotic Front, or RPF, these rebels were seizing military bases and other centers of power across the nation. As a result, Hutus were beginning to flee the country, and the genocide was breaking down. However, the government-controlled media didn't mention the RPF's progress. As far as Innocent and his companions knew, they were alone. At first, the former teacher held up well under this depressing thought. But then, he got a piece of earth-shattering news. Almost two weeks after the genocide started, Innocent met a woman who had escaped the massacre in the church at Nyamata. The refugee told Innocent that she had seen his wife during the slaughter. Hopeful, Innocent asked the woman if his wife had escaped too. She looked at him sadly and said, Given the state in which I left her, I must tell you that she is no longer of this world. Innocent was devastated. He knew he couldn't have protected his family in the church, yet he was haunted by the feeling that it was his fault that they were dead. This is a common reaction among people who live through a disaster, known clinically as survivor's guilt. An innocent was far from the only Nyamatan who experienced it. 39-year-old shopkeeper Marie-Louise was also dealing with the shame of outliving people she loved. On the first day of the genocide, she had seen her beloved husband get shot and dozens of others hacked to pieces around her. Since then, she'd been hiding out in the home of a Hutu acquaintance of her neighbor, Monsieur Florian. Every day, Interahamwe came rapping at the door of her refuge, demanding to be let in. And each time, Marie-Louise managed to buy off the attackers by slipping her hostess cash that she had hidden in her dress. Finally, after about a week in the Hutu woman's house, Marie-Louise was told she was becoming too great of a risk and would have to leave. The Interahamwe weren't just killing Tutsis, they were going after anyone who tried to help them. Once again, Marie-Louise turned to Monsieur Florian for help. She gave him her last roll of money, hoping it would be enough to buy her safe passage to the border. A short time later, the high-ranking military chief returned. He had struck a deal with a driver. Marie-Louise would be put into a sack loaded into a vehicle and driven into the forest near the border with Burundi. From there, she would be on her own. Needless to say, Marie-Louise wasn't exactly satisfied with Monsieur Florian's plan. The nation of Burundi had been taking in refugees from Rwanda since about 1960. But without her neighbor's help, the shopkeeper doubted that she could reach the border alive. Using the sharp bargaining skills she had developed over the years of running her shop, Marie-Louise proposed a deal. She told Monsieur Florian that she owned two villas in the Rwandan capital of Kigali. She would sign the deeds over to him if he agreed to accompany her to Burundi. 
In his book, SAS Survival Handbook, The Ultimate Guide to Surviving Anywhere, former British Special Forces agent John Wiseman discusses the advantages of knowing the locals. He states, the more detailed your knowledge of the way people live, the more survival knowledge you will have if you come to need it. After decades of running a shop next door to Florian, Marie-Louise knew that he was motivated by influence and the promise of enrichment. She shrewdly saved this knowledge until the moment she needed it most. The tactic worked. Florian revised his plan to have the shopkeeper dropped off in the forest. Instead, he hired a driver to take Marie-Louise and himself to his home in Gako, a military camp about 30 miles north. From there, they would eventually make their way to Burundi. Lying on the floor of the van between the driver and her Hutu neighbor, Marie-Louise had to force herself to stay quiet and perfectly still. Roadblocks were set up at regular intervals, requiring the driver to stop and show identification. Monsieur Florian's high rank helped speed them through the checkpoints, but even so, Marie-Louise was petrified. She knew that the slightest movement could catch someone's attention, and because she was a Tutsi, discovery meant instant death. Finally, after what must have been the most harrowing journey of her life, Marie-Louise felt the van come to a halt. Monsieur Florian opened the door and told her to get out. Stiff and disoriented, Marie-Louise hurried after her old neighbor across a muddy plot and into a long, low house. This was Florian's home in the camp. He assured the shopkeeper that she would be safe, at least for now. But Marie-Louise wasn't so sure. As she followed him into the back of the house, she saw something that made her blood freeze. All along the hallway, in piles ready for distribution, were hundreds of brand new axes and machetes, the same types of weapons used to slaughter her family weeks before. Monsieur Florian was providing a refuge for Marie-Louise, but he was also an important part of the system that had created this appalling tragedy. She wondered how her neighbor and protector could also be responsible for wiping her people off the earth. In the years to come, historians would propose many answers to this question. Some would cite intertribal jealousy. Others would point to the power of dehumanizing propaganda, such as the radio broadcasts that referred to the Tutsi people as cockroaches. As for Marie-Louise, she would have plenty of time to come up with her own theory as she found herself locked in a back room in the house of a murderer. Coming up, we'll see how the beleaguered few managed to survive the remaining days of the genocide and how they were saved at last. Now, back to the story. It was May 1994, a few weeks after the Hutu government had ordered its people to start exterminating Tutsis. As 39-year-old shopkeeper Marie-Louise had just discovered, this was not just an open directive. 
representatives of the government were stockpiling weapons and distributing them to Hutus with instructions to kill every Tutsi they could. Having unknowingly taken refuge in one of these very distribution centers, Marie-Louise was further than ever from safety. She had hoped to escape to Burundi, only a couple of hours on foot from her old home. But now she was trapped on a military base more than 30 miles north of the border, in the home of a man who was handing out weapons to slaughter her people. As the shopkeeper struggled to overlook the stockpiles of machetes, 30 miles south, 19-year-old Francine Niategega couldn't get them out of her mind. During the first two weeks of the genocide, Francine had survived two sharp blows to the head. She had lived for days in mosquito-infested swamp water. She had no choice but to watch and listen as others, including her own child, were murdered all around her. Now, as the number of survivors grew even fewer, Francine was forced to admit that she would probably be caught again. Although she no longer feared death, she had developed a debilitating fear of machetes. She'd heard thousands of people scream in agony as they were hacked to pieces. She was terrified of meeting the same fate. Even so, Francine decided to stay in the marsh. Injured as she was, she felt her best bet was to stay near her fiancé and remaining neighbors. That way, Although she faced the daily threat of being found and killed, she still had the benefit of companionship every night. Consciously or not, Francine was employing another survival strategy by choosing her partners in the struggle. Survivalist John Wiseman points out in his book that in disaster scenarios, a careful selection of companions can save one's life. Mentally and physically fit people can help the distraught and wounded. More importantly, a social group prevents feelings of isolation and depression, both of which pose extreme threats to human survival. Sadly, for many, companionship wasn't enough to stave off life-threatening despair. And some, such as 32-year-old Innocent Rilaliza, considered another way out. After learning that his wife had been killed in the church in Yamata, Innocent sank into a deep depression. Physically exhausted, suffering from hunger and dehydration, he decided that he no longer wanted to continue the fight to live. Like many other Tutsis who experienced the horrors of massacre, he began making plans to commit suicide. The grieving teacher heard rumors that some Tutsis had succeeded in drowning themselves in the Enyabarongo River. After a brief time of contemplation, Innocent decided that he would do the same. The largest river in Rwanda, the Enyabarongo passed about a mile from the eucalyptus forest where Innocent was taking shelter. Ironically, the mile-long journey to its banks required considerable survival skills. First, he had to make his way through the forest without being seen by the Interahamwe. Then, he had to navigate an overgrown path that led down to the water. Finally, upon reaching the river, 
he had to jump in where the current ran fast enough to pull him under. The day of his attempt, Innocent dodged killers and scrambled through the brush to make it down to the river. Just before he reached the water, he heard a noise up ahead. On instinct, he froze in his tracks. A team of Interahamwe were coming in his direction. Innocent was literally moments away from ending his own life, but faced with the reality of dying at his enemy's hands, he changed his mind. He slipped back up to the hillside and rejoined his companions. Years later, he would joke that the murderers had saved his life. In reality, as Innocent knew well, his fellow Tutsis deserved far more credit. They welcomed him back, never questioning where he had gone. And despite his sadness, the bereaved teacher drew strength from their companionship. Meanwhile, 30 miles north, 39-year-old shopkeeper Marie-Louise was attempting to survive in total isolation. For days, she had been locked inside a back room of Monsieur Florian's house in the Gakko military camp. She had only one garment to wear and was not allowed outside the room to wash or bathe. At night, when everyone else was asleep, an acquaintance of Florian's would bring Marie-Louise food, an obvious advantage when it came to survival. For weeks, the greatest threats she faced were isolation and grief. But then, one night, everything changed. In mid-May of 1994, instead of receiving her usual rations, Marie-Louise had an unexpected visitor, Monsieur Florian. The Hutu chief was in a panic. He told Marie-Louise that the Tutsi-led RPF militia was overtaking the region. The camp was being evacuated. In order to avoid detection, she had to leave his home immediately. Florian hurried Marie-Louise outside and loaded her into a waiting truck. Once again, the shopkeeper was forced to hide as the vehicle sped off toward an unknown destination. This time, the stakes were higher than ever. Marie-Louise was alone. She had no idea where the driver was taking her. All she knew was that the man was a Hutu, and she had nothing left to bargain with in case he decided to turn on her. Finally, after about an hour and a half, Marie-Louise felt the truck come to a halt. They were in a forest, though where exactly, the disoriented shopkeeper had no clue. When the driver told her to get out, she started shaking uncontrollably. She asked the man, just as she had done with Florian weeks before, to kill her as quickly and painlessly as possible. To her astonishment, the driver shook his head. He hadn't brought Marie-Louise here to kill her. He had smuggled her into the forest to save her life. The driver told Marie-Louise to run straight ahead without veering or stopping for any reason. When she reached the end of the forest, she would find a barrier marking the border between Rwanda and Burundi. Once she crossed it, she would be safe. 
Weakened by her captivity, Marie-Louise struggled to follow the man's instructions. She ran for as long as she could, and when her legs failed her, she crawled on her hands and knees. Finally, she emerged from the forest and saw that she had reached the border. The last thing she remembered was hearing soldiers call out to her. And then, Marie-Louise collapsed into sleep. This may seem an odd thing to do in such nerve-wracking circumstances, but actually, it was a natural reaction. In disaster situations, the body expends huge amounts of energy doing what it must to ensure survival. Marie-Louise hadn't been struggling from starvation or exposure, but she had been living in the house of a killer and had therefore been forced to maintain an extremely high level of vigilance. Once the shopkeeper sensed that she was out of danger, her body naturally shut down. In a state of exhaustion, she was transported to a nearby refugee camp, where at last she would be relatively safe. Back in Rwanda, other Tutsis were finding relief as well. The RPF rebels were advancing quickly toward the capital, liberating Tutsis and driving out Hutus along the way. On May 12, 1994, the RPF entered Nyamata. Hutus, who had been ravaging the district for weeks, fled for their lives. However, instead of giving chase, the rebel militia stopped their advance to search for survivors. But 19-year-old Francine Niategeka didn't realize that the region had been liberated. The morning of May 14th began just like every other day in the genocide, as Francine, Theophile, and their remaining companions hid themselves in the marsh. Hello. Sometime during the day, Francine heard shouting. She peered through the foliage and saw men dressed in camouflage fatigues at the edge of the marsh. They were calling out across the water, saying that it was safe to come out. They had freed the region, and the Hutus were gone. Francine didn't move. During her four weeks in the swamp, she had already experienced a variety of tricks from her attackers. And despite the fact that their uniforms distinguished them from the Interahamwe, she didn't trust that these men were truly there to set her free. The 19-year-old's reaction was a survival mechanism similar to that experienced by victims of domestic violence. Just as in a home abuse situation, Francine's attackers were people she had known. She now had an instinctive and completely understandable mistrust of everyone but her fellow victims. Yet, as the soldiers went on shouting, Francine began to wonder, could they be telling the truth? She decided to find out. Rising out of the muddy water, the teen began making her way toward dry land. Other survivors joined her, and as they emerged from the marsh, Francine saw the soldiers react in a way she had never imagined. Coming up, we'll see how the few who survived the genocide found a reason to keep living. Now, back to the story. On May 14, 1994, after roughly a month hiding in the Nyamwiza Marsh, 
19-year-old Francine Niategica heard soldiers shouting that it was safe to emerge. She didn't trust them at first, but eventually she decided to risk her life to find out if what the fighters were saying was true. Francine and her companions stepped out of the marsh and walked toward them. Initially, the men recoiled from the survivors in shock. However, they soon recovered from the jolt of seeing human beings in this wretched condition, and they did something Francine would never forget. They formed a line and stood at attention as she and her fellow survivors staggered by. After everything she'd been through, Francine was deeply moved by this show of respect, but she still had a long way to go to recover. She needed food, water, clean clothing, and most of all, a safe place to stay. But for the moment, none of that was available. All she had was her life and her few remaining companions. So Francine did the only thing she could. She went back home to her family's house in the Nyamatin village of Kabungo. Upon arriving, she found the streets eerily silent. Nearly four out of every five Tutsis had been killed in the genocide. Their cattle had been slaughtered, their homes broken into, many of them burned. There were corpses everywhere. Yet Francine was alive, and so was her fiancé, Theophil. Although the two could see that a massive task lay before them, they also knew they had a tremendous resource in each other. After about 30 days of thinking only of escaping death, the young couple turned their thoughts towards building a future. Hope like this was a luxury for most Tutsis. With 70% of their tribe's people dead and many of their Hutu neighbors missing, the survivors lacked the resources they needed to reestablish normalcy. In addition, many, such as the 32-year-old teacher, Innocent Rilaliza, didn't feel they had anything to live for. The day RPF soldiers liberated Nyamata, Innocent was expecting to die. He had started this nightmare 30 days before with 6,000 companions. Now, there were only 20 of them left. And the grieving teacher knew that even if he survived the day's killings, his time would come. Even so, when he saw RPF soldiers enter the forest, Innocent felt no relief. Numb from the trauma of the past four weeks, he simply walked back to town, sat down, and didn't move. Earlier in this episode, we mentioned how survivor's guilt can cause symptoms like feeling disconnected and suicidal thoughts. And it may be that this is what Innocent was experiencing the day the RPF took Nyamata. However, it's also possible that Innocent was having an acute stress reaction from all the trauma he had witnessed in the past 30 days. Like survivor's guilt, acute stress reactions can cause feelings of numbness and detachment. In addition, they sometimes result in avoidance of anything that will trigger negative memories. According to Dr. Lawrence Knott, a general practitioner with expertise in biochemistry, 
This may mean avoiding people, conversations, or other situations as they cause distress and anxiety. In the coming weeks, Innocent withdrew almost completely. Exhausted and weakened from constantly running for his life, he began to drift through the streets in a feverish haze. Every now and then, he thought he saw his wife in the crowd, and his heart leapt with hope that she may still be alive. But time and again, the former teacher found he was mistaken, and he was forced to continue walking alone. As Innocent struggled to find a reason to go on living in Nyamata, elsewhere in Rwanda, the war was finally coming to an end. On July 4th, 1994, the RPF finally won control of Rwanda's capital. Keeping a promise they had made to restore national unity, the RPF installed a Hutu president and a Tutsi minister of defense, with this act of solidarity, the Rwandan Civil War was officially over. Although the war had ended, Rwanda would feel its effects for decades to come. Millions of refugees had fled to camps throughout Africa. Even though the United Nations sent aid, food and medical supplies were scarce. Residents of the camps reported abuse and discrimination, suggesting that the problems that had caused them to flee their homeland continued to haunt them. Nyamatan shopkeeper Marie-Louise was one of those who suffered such difficulties. She lived out the final days of conflict in a refugee camp in Burundi. One day soon after the war ended, however, she was surprised to see a familiar face in the crowd. It was one of her husband's associates, he had come to the camp in hopes of finding her. The man barely recognized the wife of his old friend, Leonard. He remembered Marie-Louise as a stout, cheerful store owner, full of life. But the woman he saw before him was a shadow of her former self. Marie-Louise had lost 40 pounds since the genocide began. Like many in the refugee camps, she was suffering from head lice and swollen feet. Her clothes were filthy, her skin covered with sores. Moved by her suffering, the man took Marie-Louise into his care and helped her prepare to go back home. In late July, Marie-Louise returned to Nyamata. Like Francine and Innocent, she found little there to give her hope. All of her family and neighbors were dead. The warehouse where she and Leonard had once stocked their shop had been pillaged. Their vehicles were gone. And perhaps worst of all, her family photo albums had been burned. The Hutus hadn't only destroyed her things, they had destroyed her memories. Like innocent, Marie-Louise sank into depression. She had no sense of what day or even what season it was. She had no idea how long it had been since the genocide began, nor did she care. Nevertheless, instinct compelled her to keep going. Marie-Louise saw that she and the other survivors needed food, water, and shelter. 
and just as her fellow townspeople had done during the killings, Marie Louise soon found that her companions were her greatest hope for survival. The Nyamatans began working together to collect food. Beans from the overgrown fields, chickens that had run off into the forest. They prepared communal meals and slept in groups at night to help one another feel safe. Perhaps even more importantly, they began to talk. Every night, as they gathered for an evening meal, Francine, Theophile, Marie-Louise, and Innocent talked with each other about their memories of the genocide. They recalled moments of bravery, along with times of sadness. Though they may not have defined it as such, the survivors were practicing talk therapy, which Dr. Lawrence Knott recommends as a treatment for acute stress disorder. Serving as each other's counselors, the Tutsis were providing exactly what they needed to begin processing their grief and rebuilding the community. And the benefits soon started to show. Four months after Francine emerged from the Nyamwiza Marsh, she and Teofil were married. They took up residence in a three-room house where they cared for four orphans and later had two children of their own. Marie-Louise also began to take up her old habits again. She started slowly, helping organize meals for the local children. Then, one day, a group of neighbors came to her with some money they had scraped together. They remembered what a good bargainer Marie-Louise had been and asked her to invest the money in a new business to help them all survive. Using these funds, Marie-Louise opened a new shop in Nyamata, a general store with a few tables and chairs where survivors could meet and talk through their memories. One of her best customers was former teacher, Innocent Rilaliza. Sadly, Innocent's suffering hadn't ended with the war. In addition to grieving his family's deaths, he had stepped on a landmine in the street one day and lost his leg. His only comforts were the companionship that Marie-Louise provided in her shop and the encouragement of his community. This support was enough to keep him going. He continued his nightly conversations with survivors. And gradually, as the years went by, he noticed that people's memories began to change. Studies have shown that as people recover from acute stress disorder, their recollection of traumatic events can be altered. They grow more emotional as the survival benefits of dissociation dwindle. Their thoughts may also become less disorganized, details remembered in a different way. As for Innocent, the painful memories of his wife and children finally began to fade. In the genocide's immediate aftermath, he dreamed of them every night. But after a while, he found that a few weeks might pass without their image manifesting in his mind. Eventually, he remarried and fathered several more children. Nevertheless, the former teacher would never fully recover from the Rwandan genocide. In a fascinating change of perspective, he began to believe that his ability to survive was hindering his ability to recover. He explained, during the genocide, something mysterious in the heart's core has become blocked. Survivors know they will never learn what this is, so they tend not to believe that they're alive anymore. 
And in a way, that's a little how they keep going. The ability to keep going has been critical, not only to innocence recovery, but to that of the nation in the decades following the war. As the Hutus who fled return home and the Tutsis go back to living near their old attackers, the threat of violence persists. But so far, the Rwandans have managed to stave it off, giving their nation an opportunity to rebuild. It seems clear that this is due to a conviction the Tutsis learned during the genocide, that people's best hope for survival is in one another. Thanks for listening to Survival. We'll be back next week with another episode. For more information on the Rwandan genocide, amongst the many sources we used, we found Jean Hatzfeld's book, Life Laid Bare, The Survivors in Rwanda Speak, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Survival and other BarCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite podcast originals like Survival for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Survival on Spotify, just open the app and type Survival in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Survival was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Joel Stein, Maggie Admire, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Survival was written by Megan Dane and stars Irma Blanco and Tim Johnson. <laughs>